Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us three make tents. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we come to our study of the Gospel of Mark. We started in verse 1, chapter 1, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Gospel of the Messiah. Um, They've said that Jesus' life can be broken down into three parts. First was obscurity, as he was growing up, and then popularity. And in chapter 9, really chapter 8 and 9, he starts into the third part of his life, which is adversity, as he heads toward the cross. So if you, as a, by way of illustration to introduce this passage of transfiguration, if you know Jillian and I well, uh, my wife and I, we love the mountains. So we lived near the ocean for many years in North Africa, but we would always take trips three hours west or east into the Atlas Mountains. And during the six years we lived in Germany, we lived just five hours from the heart of the Swiss Alps. Now that is a beautiful place, and I would love to try to describe to you what it's like to drive into a valley of the Swiss Alps to go up to this town called Muren that you can only reach by hiking or a cog rail. There's no road that gets to this steep town. And in the mornings, as you wake up in the Swiss Alps, you can see across the valley a helicopter that looks like a little fly, a little fly in the distance that's picking up logs off the side and dropping them into another place. And the fog, and it's just, I'm trying to describe it with words. Now you have a, a bit of an idea because you've seen mountains before. But if you've never been to the Swiss Alps, you probably haven't seen mountains quite as beautiful as the Swiss Alps. And I can do my best to describe it to you, but I could do a little better, and I could show you a picture of it. This is a picture we took. We took Jillian rock climbing in the Swiss Alps. This was her uh, death-defying feat to get over her fear of uh, heights. I don't think it helped in that area, but she did. She did do it. And this is a picture we took while we were rock climbing there last year. And so I can show you a picture, but there's still a problem with the picture, right? It's a 2D picture. You can't get yourself immersed in it. So today, the passage we come to 
in the transfiguration is when Christ, not only in word, but gives a visual illustration for the disciples. And we're calling this the good news apocalypse. So you maybe have heard of zombie apocalypse, right? This is a, the word apocalypse means an unveiling. So you see things as they really are. In particular, you see things as they are going to be. And this is what the transfiguration is. Jesus takes his three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. They go up and really what was a hill, wasn't like the Swiss Alps there, and they see Christ for the glory that really is there behind the human tent that Jesus is wearing. And as we look at this, it's, it's, this is the most, you know, all of the Bible, you could say, is the self-revelation of God. It is God describing to us what he's like. This is the mountain peak of all of scripture of the self-revelation of God. This is higher than the revelation that Moses got as he looked at a burning bush, or that Isaiah got as he saw God high and lifted up on his throne on the year that, he, that, that King Uzziah died. This is a higher peak even than John the Revelator got as he wrote the revelation, and he saw God on his throne and the Lamb enthroned. This is Jesus the very image of God, it says that in all of the prophets, God revealed himself, and in these last days, has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. So as they saw Jesus for who he really was, he was transfigured into the person of Jesus, or into the glory that is his in Jesus, I'm reminded of the glory that we all search for. Now, we have our kids with us today, so we're going to make this a shorter sermon than usual. We're also going to use a few illustrations that will help our kids to understand some things. But if, if um, children, we live for fun a lot of times, right? We get up, and we want to have fun. And that thing to us always seems to end too soon. When fun is over and you have to go to bed, or fun is over and you have to go to school. Or fun is over and you have to sit here, for example. We want to try to alleviate that a little bit today with a few illustrations. I have some cookies that if you pay real close attention, I'm going to give each everybody paid attention now. Uh, if you're a child or you have the heart of a child and you're brave enough to come up here, then I'll give you a sugar cookie as an illustration later. So what we want to learn, guys, today is that we are all on a quest for glory. We want the thing that will fill us, and we try to find that glory in things on this earth. We are, as one of the reformers said, we are, our hearts are a continual idol factory that is making things that we hope will bring us the fulfillment of a glorious thing. And we make idols out of one another, we make idols out of ourselves, we make idols out of things. So Jesus is being seen here as the one worthy of worship and the glory for what he really is. And we were going to learn three things. So as these three disciples got a true vision of who Jesus is, we want to think about deeply what do we learn about that from this, as they saw this apocalypse, as they saw things as they really are. And there's three things that we're going to see about the glory of Christ. The first is that the glory of Christ is intrinsic. 
That might be a new word for you, especially if you're younger. The glory of Christ is intrinsic. The glory of Christ is unfading. And the glory of Christ is still veiled. Those are the three things that I think Peter, James, and John were meant to understand from this revelation or this apocalypse, this good news apocalypse. So, first thing, let's read here in the first few verses, verses 2 through 4. Kent read it for us, and we're just going to review it. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and they led up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So we notice two things here. First of all is that Jesus, as he was on this mountain, was shining as if his clothes were br the brightest white, and he was radiant, the Bible says. This is another word for radiant, would be glowing. And the second thing we see is that he was on a mountain, and it took six days. So what just happened six days previously? Because Mark is usually the guy who says, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. So now he says it was six days since the last conversation that Mark wrote down, which was the conversation about how he was going to go to the cross, and then he was going to rise again. And that if anybody wanted to follow him, then they would go through, they would have to take, carry their cross, deny themselves, and follow Jesus. So six days after this first prophecy of his suffering on the cross and his resurrection, he goes up into this mountain. So what is all this imagery about? A mountain in six days and then Moses is there and Elijah. Well, this reminds us of the six days that Moses went up onto Mount Sinai before God appeared to Moses and gave him the law. It was, as Exodus chapter 34 says, it was exactly six days after Moses left the people and went up on the mountain that God gave him the two tablets of the law. When Moses came down from the mountain, I don't know if you know this, kids, but when Moses came down from the mountain, how many of you guys know about the Ten Commandments, right? We read that earlier. So when Moses came down from that mountain, the Bible says in Exodus that his face shone so brightly because he had been with God that he had to put a veil over it or people could not look on him. Here we see, though, Moses is there and he's not shining. He's not the one who's radiant. It is Jesus because the glory of Moses was like the glory of the moon. I was, we were doing a little bit of scientific discussion in our Friday morning meeting and David Michael, our resident scientist, was explaining to us grown adults how the moon works and that you see the brightness of the moon because the sun is reflect, it's reflecting the light of the sun. And you see a half moon if you're seeing the sun hit the moon from the side. You see a full moon if you're seeing the sun hit the moon directly on. And so the glory of Moses and of the law and of the Ten Commandments that we just read was the glory of re the reflected glory of God. But the glory of Jesus is intrinsic. The word intrinsic, it just means that it's found in him. It's not outside of him. It comes from him. So the glory of Christ is an intrinsic glory. That means that all things that we find glorious, fun, fulfillment, relationships, beauty of the mountains, whether they're the Swiss Alps or I'm trying to think of something beautiful in this area. It's not coming to mind. But anything that we find that's beautiful is 
a reflected glory of the glory of God in Christ. Listen to this New Testament verse, 2 Corinthians 4. Let, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So the God who shone light by his word has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the glory of Christ is that same intrinsic glory by which God created the sun and as he made light shine. So now comes the cookie. Are you guys ready? This is an illustration about intrinsic glory. Could, if, you're, if you're a child or you consider yourself a child, would you come up here so I can give you a cookie? I asked your parents, most of your parents, if you can have a cookie. It's a sugar cookie, so it's a good one, I think. All right? So I've got a sugar cookie for each one of you. Are you guys ready? All right, here you go. Here's your sugar cookie, and here's your sugar cookie. This is a sugar cookie. Here's your sugar. You can stay up here, Jacob. Jacob, you come up here. All right, I want everybody to have one of these, okay? Now, here you go. Everybody get one of these. I have You can get two. Okay, this... All right, we'll give one over here. Now, guys, is this a cookie? No. Yes. Okay. Yes. It is? Okay. Do you think that cookies are good? Yes. Do you like sugar? Raise your hand if you like sugar cookies. Okay. Does that look tasty? No. Yes. Yeah. Okay, it's paper, but does the picture look like something that might represent something that's tasty? Yeah. Would you like the real thing that's in that that's on that printed on that paper? Yeah. Okay. So now I have actual sugar cookies. Okay, so I'm going to give this to Caleb and let you guys go here to the middle and you can pass out one oops, sorry. You can pass out one you, you can go down there, buddy. And you can pass out one sugar cookie. That is a thank you for paying attention and it's an illustration. Here's how it's an illustration. How did you know that that sugar cookie was going to be good? You've had one before, right? You've tasted it, and you've seen that it is good, and we have more sugar cookies for the rest of you guys later. So what was Jesus doing? Why did he give his disciples this glorious, true vision of who he is? because he wanted to give the leaders of his new church a taste for the most glorious thing, the intrinsic glory that created all glory, who is Jesus, God revealed in the person of Jesus. It's like we have God's word here, right? We have this paper, and printed on this paper is words, and we love the words that are printed on this paper, but what good are the words printed on this paper? They point us to something that's satisfying, that's glorious, that is healing, that is intrinsically good, and it is the person of Jesus. So Jesus is that intrinsic glory of God who was with us. So what does this mean for us? Now sometimes in church we look for glory, we look for satisfaction in our community of believers, right? And as it grows and as we see new children coming and being born and new people coming to faith in Jesus, we sometimes dis get distracted from the real glorious thing and we start thinking that it's the church that's a glorious thing. But the church is only glorious as it reflects Jesus. 
as it faces Jesus. Sometimes if you're a teenage male, which I at one time was, you think that you are the most glorious thing, you know? And you think you're the strongest and the best looking and that every, everything, I'm just joking with you fellows that are teenage males. But we all have that problem where we think that we are kind of it, right? What we're seeing in the person of Jesus here is that he is the intrinsic glory. And anything that about us that's worth anything is only as we reflect him like the moon reflects the sun. And so as people see Christ in us, they can only see the goodness that comes from him. There's no goodness that's intrinsic to ourselves. So... Um, the, the second thing, quickly, because I, I promised the kids what we would do here, the second thing is that the glory of Christ is unfading. Now, we saw here that Elijah and Moses was with him. And then in verse, if you see here in verse 5, Peter says this very off-the-wall kind of comment. He says, and in, in verse 6 it says he said it because he didn't know what to say. Peter's one of those people who just says stuff when they get nervous. We saw that happen last time. Sometimes it works out well where he says, you are the Christ. Other times it works out quite poorly when he, says, when he tries to rebuke the Savior of the world. Here it's going to work out poorly again for Peter. And Peter says, let's build three tents for the three of you. Now, the word tent is a tabernacle and it's a place of worship. And what he wanted to do was to worship Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And he wanted to stay there on that mountain because he was so in awe of the glory that he was seeing. But all of Moses' glory, the greatest prophet of Israel's history, was fading. Meaning that the word God sent to Moses was, is not meant to be the eternal law that always stays. It was a temporal thing. It was passing. The exodus that Moses led from Egypt was an exodus of out of physical slavery. But those people who left slavery would be enslaved again by the Romans and many times again in their history. And so that exodus was fading. And the work that Moses did, the people God created through and under Moses, the Jewish people under the people of Israel, was a fading group of people that were not meant to be an eternal um, people that found its completion in itself. But Jesus, the prophet of the second exodus, which is what we see, we sang the song, Christ the good and better Moses. He led a second and better exodus that would be an eternal exodus out of Egypt, out of an Egypt of sin, and into eternal life. So the word of God in Christ will live and abide forever. And this is why the Father from the cloud, if you look in verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So we see that Jesus only means that all of the prophets fade, and all of the law fades, and all of the people fades, but Jesus remains. And the glory of Christ is the glory that's unfading. I think we realize this, and we learn this at a young age, right? Jillian and I were in the Rocky Mountains last month celebrating our 20th anniversary, and she just wanted, she said, this is so beautiful, wouldn't it be amazing to live here? And I said, you know, if you lived here, you'd get tired of it, and you'd stop noticing that there's, this beauty is here. It would diminish with time. 
Now, I realize you would always, when visitors come, they would notice the beauty, right? And they would say, wow, this is amazing. And you'd be like, yeah, it's just, I, I, this is my commute every day, and you're bored with it. Marriage is like this. You get married, and it's amazing, and it's new, but it fades. And it gets, with time, you, what you thought would be fulfilling, you find doesn't completely fulfill you. All things in life, playtime and recess and lunch and whatever it is for the kids, that, the things you enjoy, it's fading. But Christ has an unfading glory. So, young man, your strength is fading. Young woman, your beauty is fading. Dads and moms, your wealth is fading. Seek God. Seek first the kingdom. Remember now your creator. If you're suffering through something, we had this, I had this talk this week. I've personally, as a pastor, been sometimes overwhelmed by the suffering that people go through that doesn't seem to have solutions. Physical, mental, emotional, all sorts of suffering. And I want to bring solutions to them. And I was talking to one brother this week, and I said, I don't know what to do for people that are suffering, and, and it's going to last so long. And my good friend looked at me and he said, it doesn't last long. It's for a moment. And he reminded me of 2 Corinthians 4, 17 that says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. So this brings us to the third point. The glory of Christ, not only is it intrinsic and unfading, but it is still veiled. So they come down off the mountain here in verse 9. And as they came down off the mountain, it says, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son and Man had been risen from the dead. So what Jesus is saying is that this glory that you just saw on the mountain where I'm radiant, don't tell anybody about it until the resurrection. So it's going to be veiled. It's going to be covered. Peter was not allowed to stay on that mountain with the glory that Jesus was showing him. Peter wanted to. He said, let's build, let's build worship places and let's just stay here. We have reached the pinnacle of where I want to be. And Jesus said, no, we're coming back down and you're not going to tell anybody about this until the resurrection. And then in verse 10, we're going to see a lot of people didn't obey this command. In verse 10, it says they kept the matter to themselves. So they did obey. But look what it says, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they still, this is the third time Jesus talks about his suffering, and they were not clear on what it means that he was going to suffer and rise from the dead. And then in verse 11, it says, they asked him this question, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Now, that seems like a random question, right? What, why does, well, they had just seen Elijah who met with Jesus. I don't know how they knew he was Elijah because they didn't have paintings of Elijah or you know, Polaroids, so I guess he just had a shirt that said Elijah. I'm not sure, or maybe Jesus said, this is my friend Elijah. But in any case, they knew that that was Elijah, and they said, doesn't the scripture say that Elijah is supposed to come first? Now, what were they saying with this question? They knew from the passage that Kent read, which was our complimentary reading, that when Elijah returns, the king would reign in justice and in power, and would heal all the sicknesses of his people. And they're like, well, okay, Elijah has come. We just saw him on the mountain. And if he's come, what's this talk about suffering and resurrection? Because in the prophecy, right after Elijah comes, you're supposed to reign if you're the Messiah. 
And look at what Jesus says to them. He says in verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So Jesus said, what, what I think this was a, a sort of a veiled attempt by Peter to avoid suffering again. So Peter was the one who tried to rebuke Jesus about going to the cross. This time he's a little smarter about it. And he says, okay, Elijah's here. That means reigning immediately. And Jesus is like, let me tell you something, Peter. The Son of Man must suffer. Don't think you're going to figure out a way around this. He must suffer and be treated with contempt. And then in verse 13, it says, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, he's speaking here of John the Baptist. This is a very obvious to the disciples. He's speaking of John the Baptist as that Elijah who came and was killed. So this is the question then. We live today, we cannot see the glory of Christ. We see our Bibles, we read about the glory of Christ, but we can't see it. I was listening to a podcast the other day where an atheist in his argument about Christianity said, if I get to heaven and God is real, I am going to tell him it is your fault that you did not give me enough evidence for me to believe that you existed. This was his argument. He said, we see evil, that you haven't stopped, and you haven't shown yourself to me, so there's simply not enough evidence for me to believe that you exist. So that brings up a good question for our conclusion. Why is the glory of Christ veiled? Why would Jesus come in all of his glory and power as a baby in a poor family in a manger and then live a life looking like a normal human being and dying a death on the cross that is full of reproach that our friends, many especially in our community here, cannot accept that, Jesus, that the, a prophet from God would die on a cross. Why does God do this? Why does Jesus come and not just show his glory to everybody all the time? And the simple answer for that is going to be an illustration I'm going to ask Isaac to help me with. Can I get, uh, can I get Jacob to come up here? Isaac, you can go back. This is a little illustration. Why? Come on up, buddy. Uh, we're, why does God veil himself in the person of Christ so that you can't, we can't see his glory today? Why is this cross above me wooden and not shining with the glory of Jesus? Okay? And I think that the answer is, I'm going to get to the point while you're up here, sorry. That I think the answer is that faith is what is required to please God. The New Testament says without faith... You cannot please him. So here's what we're going to do. Come on over here, Jacob. We are going to call your dad on the phone. All right? And you're not going to be able to see him, but he's going to make you a promise. Okay? Let's see if we can get This is Isaac Friel. Come on over, Jacob. Do you get an allowance, Jacob? Would you like an allowance? Do you know what an allowance is? Would you like to get money? Yeah. What? Hey, Isaac. Yes, hello. Let me get your, uh, can you guys hear him? Can you say hi again? Hi, can you hear me? Okay, hi here. Okay, they hear you okay. So, um, Isaac, I have here with me Jacob. I think you have something for him, huh? I do. What do you got for Jacob, Isaac? I have a $10 bill. Okay. 
Jacob, do you believe your dad that he has a $10 bill he wants to give you? No. You don't believe him? <laughs> okay. Isaac, how does that make you feel that he doesn't believe you have a $10 bill? Well, I wish you'd believe me because it's true. Um, Jacob, what stops your belief? Do you think he doesn't have enough money? Like he's not rich enough to give you $10? No. Okay. Do you think he doesn't like you enough to give you $10? No. So what do you think is the obstacle of faith that you would believe that your dad would give you $10? Do you need to think about it? Okay. So here's what we're going to do, Jacob. We're going to, because you doubt that your dad is going to give you $10, we're going to turn this audio call into a video call, and we're going to call your dad. Okay, can you see your dad? Mm -hmm. Isaac, uh, we're having some problems believing that, you're, that you have $10. Can you please show Jacob the $10 that you have in your hand? Is that $10? Mm -hmm. Now, do you promise, Isaac, to give that $10 to Jacob? I promise. Now, do you believe your dad's going to give you this $10? Still not sure, Isaac. Could you please come in in all of your glory and give... I don't mean that you... Keep your clothes on. But just come on in, and would you please give uh, your son this $10? Not, not all of your glory. All right, so here's Isaac. Can you come up here, Isaac, and give this $10 to Jacob? Okay. So, I, Ryan, I know what you're thinking. Okay, so, Katie, now do you believe your dad would give you $10? You're still wondering, is he going to take this $10 back from me? All right, you can, you can grab a seat. Um, now, as you might imagine, the fa and we kind of set this up. Jacob actually did not know what to say, but Isaac did. I, I think he did very well. Thank you, Jacob. But can you imagine the way that a dad feels if, his son, if he calls his son and he says, says, prove it to me and show me. And he shows him and he says, well, I still don't have it in my hand. You have to give it to me. And then he has to give him that $10. And finally, what, is he, what do we understand from that situation? That there is no trust between us and God who has promised us through his word. So what is the answer and the conclusion of the transfiguration today? Though we cannot see God in all of his glory, Though we cannot see God in the face of Christ shining today, what does the Father tell Peter? This is my son. And what's his command? Listen to him. Listen to him. Believe in the promises that he is telling you and in the goodness that is intrinsic to him and the riches and the power that he has. So what is the conclusion? When it seems that he has delayed his appearing and we can't see him, Listen to him. Listen to the son. When it seems that this road in life is hard and long with much suffering, listen to the son. When you don't understand all that the Bible says and how it fits together, you remember Peter and them, they didn't understand. Elijah comes, why, what's with the suffering? When you don't understand even God's word totally, listen to the son and keep listening to him. There is a lot of suffering down here, but take heart. He entered into our suffering 
with us and will bring us to the other side. So we're going to sing a song here. It's called, My Jesus, I Love Thee. And it's all about looking to the Savior and his suffering and resurrection with eyes of faith. God has ordained it that he would show Peter and James and John this vision that would launch the first church, but he has equally ordained it that you and I do not get that full vision. And we are like Jacob hearing his father on the phone, believing you will come and you will make all things right. You will end suffering. In fact, you did already come into our suffering and take it upon yourself on the cross. And as we sing this song, one verse comes, strikes me particularly. It says, my Jesus, I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. So if you're a believer in Jesus, Kent's going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper and Hannah's going to play this song for us. And let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Even that you don't reveal yourself in all your glory to us, we don't understand it. I think if all of us could say, reveal yourself now, we would, but in your sovereignty, you have given us your word, and Lord, we will say that is enough. We, have, we, know, we believe that you came into our world, and you suffered in our place, and you rose again. And for those who are going through suffering or who are filling the, 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 the gap of glory in their lives with lesser glories, Lord, I pray that now we would see Christ in our minds of faith lifted up, on the cross and in his resurrected body, having conquered death, and that we could worship you, looking toward the day of your appearing, that we know that you appeared once to these disciples as a pre prelude and a preview of the glory that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen.